<laughs> I like I like forgot how this works. I like kicked Aiden off of his desk because my like ring lights there and I got everything all set up and I like did my makeup but I sat down and I was like nobody's gonna see me. <laughs> well, if you want to take a picture of yourself being all pretty, we can post that along with the crystallized image and call it good. <laughs> I just sat here and I was like, wait, how does this work again? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I can also switch it over to Zoom, but I, I guarantee you I did not put on my makeup, so no. I'm not going to be pretty. No, no, this is this is fine. I just, my like braid, I just sat here and I was looking at my computer and I was like, now where do I go? <laughs> <laughs> what, what happens next? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. What happens when you take a redneck fishing guide and pair him up with a master beekeeper? Well, we're about to find out. Join our host, Ken Milam and John Swan, as they help you brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. This is The Hive Jive. Welcome, everybody, to uh, a, a great way to start off an episode here. And as you have heard, we are joined today by the wonderful Miss Tara Chapman. And um, before we get too far along, I got to know, you at this point are basically hella pregnant. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> JJ. I <laughs> So I am 35 weeks pregnant and I pulled honey this morning. <gasps> and I, I don't say that to be like, look at me. I'm such a badass. It's like more of a, a call for help. <laughs> <laughs> I would say so. It's more of a call for help and desperation. And I promised Aiden, my fiance, that I would be out of the bee yards at 34 weeks. And he like balked. And I was like, I mean, I thought that was a concession. I was going to offer you 36. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, yeah, it's it's very interesting. I've like set my limits. I can lift an eight pound super 10 frames or a no go. <laughs> That's where yeah. we are. <laughs> yeah, but no, I can I'm very see that. pregnant. I'm very pregnant. So I've had a couple of moments where I had to like have a little, you know, come to Jesus meeting and really be like, Tara, you gotta like, be smarter. Um, so hopefully I'm not in the bee yards after next week. That's my goal. Well, and I'm glad that you were there early this morning, because right now, the feels like temperature this afternoon by the time we get done with this episode is supposed to be 108. Yeah, it's real hot out there. It sucks. The I humidity had, is yeah. horrific. Uh, I hate Texas. I hate Texas so much. I was I had two yards to do. One's in the sun and one's in the shade. And I did the, the I was just racing through the yard in the sun, trying my best to get through it before the clouds, you know, broke and the sun peeked through, and then I could move into the shade, but. Yeah, I have decided I just hate Texas. I just hate it so much. <laughs> well, you know, Austin, when I first moved down here, was not this humid because it was just ending that historic drought. Yeah. And then we started having monsoon seasons every May and October. And then this year, it just won't stop raining. <laughs> I know. And we've actually gotten, you know, like we haven't even hit true triple digits yet. We've got feel like triple digits on the daily, but... We are even having a quote mild summer for what it has been. <laughs> I know. And uh, I, so I was, you'll love this. I was in California. First of all, I just have to say, I've, I've said this a lot in the last 48 hours to various people that want to listen to me complain, but 
people, all of my beekeepers listening, nobody, nobody has no idea how hard you work. People have no idea how hard this job is. And I was out in California and someone who's not a beekeeper, you know, I was saying how I was getting nervous for bee season. Um, cause I don't have, I'm short staffed, super short staffed. And I don't have the team that I need to do the work that we do. And she said, when are you due? And I said, October 1st. And she goes, oh, well, at least you'll have September. It's be nice weather. And I thought, oh, God, she has no idea how Texas works, does she? That's not how Texas works. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) Like November is the first break that we get. Yeah. 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 And, And also, you know, I mean, I my heart just hurts for California, like, I heard a lot about the water issues and the drought while I was out there and learned a whole lot and talked to a lot of different farmers and beekeepers and man, just a struggle. Um, but I also had several conversations, you know, with people that were saying things like, I bet it's not this hot in Texas. And again, I didn't say it, but I thought, you don't know how Texas works because not all heat is created equal. And I know people get so annoyed when you go, at least it's a dry heat, but it is true. I grew up in rural West Texas where there's zero humidity ever, yep. never. And you can stand in the shade and be totally comfortable. Yeah, you get a minimum 15 degree difference just by stepping oh, into the shade. my God, yes. And you don't get that here. And now that I'm a giant pregnant whale, you know, like, body parts touch that never touched before. And I'm just so <laughs> uncomfortable every second. Um, but my mom is really enjoying my misery. Um, you know, like for, for me, it was always like, you know, people talk about walking for exercise and I'd be like walking for exercise. And now I'm like, shit, I got to go get my walk in today. I didn't get my exercise in. It has been a very humbling experience and I have incredible, I needed to have more empathy for people and I am getting that experience now. (laughs) Well, you're still a rock star because you're, you're still managing your business and short staffed out there picking up the slack while you are at this stage of your pregnancy. And that's amazing. So kudos to you on that. Um, It could also be a slight bit of insanity, but whatever. (laughs) Yes, things are definitely changing. It's been, you know, like I've been thinking a lot about what we do and we're scaling back in some areas for sure. Things have to change and that's good. You know, like these life experiences that you don't expect give you the opportunity (laughs) to look at the way you do things and reshuffle priorities. And so we'll be doing some reshuffling of things because I can do this now. Cause you know, the baby, he just comes along for the ride, but in six months, I don't, I don't think it's a good idea. I don't know. I don't have kids, but I don't think it's a wise idea to strap a baby to you and put a bee suit on and go out to the bee yard. I'm going to guess that's a bad idea. So unless he's in a little bee suit, you know, I mean, (laughs) then maybe, I don't know. Do they sell six, do they sell newborn bee suits? I have not seen that yet. I'm not (laughs) sure, but I have received a shipment of gloves that might as well have been for newborns because I don't know any human whose hand would have fit in there. Oh my God. All that equipment comes from Pakistan and China and the sizing is just all over the map. You're right. It either fits the palm of your hand, but the fingers are somehow two inches too long. Or you can't even get your hand into it. <laughs> You're like, um, 
we have we have a supplier in Pakistan, and I'm always telling him, remember, these are Americans. They're not Pakistanis that are going to have to wear these suits. <laughs> yeah. We have, you know, apparently just alien appendages when it comes to how things <laughs> should fit for our hands and whatnot. You know, the rest of the world, completely different story. Um, yeah, it's that's totally. crazy. So um, mm-hmm. real quick, you you mentioned the whole you know, sometimes things in life make you have to stop and and reprioritize. And I am only going to say this as a brief little teaser because I have been um, terrifying everybody out there on social media with my random and vague posts. But (laughs) this, the podcast is about to go through its own reprioritization and I'm calling it, um, we're going into a pupation cycle. Are you about to make a big announcement and I get to hear it? Nope. Oh. <laughs> Damn. Was, I have I have been yes. seeing these posts by the uh, way. I, yeah. I, I, as you know, I was I was commenting on your phenomenal graphics. And Don't you I, love that? I like it's amazing yeah. what you can do with with a bitmoji. <laughs> I, like, I do love it. I have yeah. figured out how to take them like the 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 phone, you know, it's just the simple Bitmoji app. You go in, you customize it to look like you, and then you can send pictures to your friends doing goofy things. And I was like, well, it has a bee suit in there for one of the costumes. So I put myself in a bee suit and then eventually I had to create a separate account and create one for Ken so we could put Ken in a bee suit. And then I take those and I put them into Photoshop and I turn them into transparencies where there's just the image and then I can overlay them onto whatever I want and start adding and stacking all these different aspects and graphics in there. And that's where we come up with our random little <laughs> episode social media posts that come out, you know, with with each episode to go along with it. But they're yes, amazing. But there they're there amazing. will be I appreciate that. <laughs> so <laughs> but yeah, there there will be uh the next episode that we do, we will we will have some announcements and there will be some uh, some downtime and some changes and stuff, and uh, we'll we'll go from there. So this is officially the last interview that I will be doing for a while, and you get to be my last guest ah. for a little while. Oh well, I feel so honored that I can be here with you. Well, I think it's only fair. Um, you know, you did try to tell me that for some ridiculous reason you can't come and present this year at the convention because you know <laughs> giving birth, giving birth and all. You know, I mean. I just assume you're out there extracting honey and whatnot. And you said you'll strap the baby on. So who knows? Maybe you'll be up in front of people. <laughs> baby I, in I, tow. <laughs> I have two people, both my events coordinator and then again, Aiden here constantly being like, no. I mean, I booked out. So I cleared my schedule for August. I'm not doing any teaching. Just to mostly like give me a little break, even though we're, we're pulling honey because the harvest was so late. And then I super stacked my September and they're both like, yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. So I've got two little like figures sitting on either shoulder, constantly being like, no, you're not, you're not doing that Tara. So I, if I had my choice, I would be there, but um, it's a hard no. (laughs) I I wholly understand. Trust me. It's just, it was just funny though. Cause when you sent that response back and you were like, I'm probably not going to make it cause I'm due like just before that. And I was like, ah, likely excuse. <laughs> so, but okay. So to circle back around today, we are actually talking about a very specific topic and you had mentioned 
um, on your social media and some of your things that you've put out that you guys are doing your honey harvest. I just finished mine and it kind of sounds like much like me, you guys have experienced a far limited, more limited harvest this year than we have in years past. And yeah, some of those honeys this year. Okay. So we're talking about honey crystallization. And I will let you take off and run with this in just a second. But this year when I was extracting from the top bars, brand new comb just drawn this season, capped, still with a moisture content that I am not 100% okay with, but needs to come out of the colony so that I can move on and get stuff done. And I am crushing it and it is already halfway crystallized. And I can feel the gritty, sandy texture as I'm crushing this comb and it's coming out between my fingers. And I'm like, are you kidding me? It is super humid. It is super hot. And yet the honey is already crystallizing. That's bizarre. That is super interesting. So I've heard of that happening, particularly with um, sunflower honey and cotton, but I've never actually seen it. Now, I will tell you, I have never in Austin had to worry about um, too high water content. And this is the first year that we've seen it and we've actually had to do humidify honey. Yep. So that was new for me. I'm guessing because of all the rain. I, I can't think of why else. <laughs> Who would but have thought? <laughs> yeah. But I have not seen honey actually crystallize in the comb. So that means that honey must have super high fructose, whatever you're getting. Yeah, it's. I'm thinking... Because of the early freeze this year, our entire bloom pattern and the different types of flora and fauna that did bloom was all helter-skelter and mixed up. Mm -hmm. Stuff that normally would, didn't. Stuff that you normally don't see was everywhere. And Mm -hmm. we do have a ton of wild sunflowers out there at the moment. And they're still blooming. And they're still blooming and, and bringing in nectar from those blooms, which that's also another thing that's unusual for us. Usually by about the middle of July, it's it's a desert. There's nothing out there to eat. You know, it's a food desert. And here I'm out there just last weekend checking colonies and all of them still have frames of fresh nectar that's just been brought in that's just still basically pure water. And I'm like, this is so weird. But yet it was such a slow trickle. We didn't have the abundance to have like, you know, box upon box upon box of capped honey. I got a box or a box and a half out of most of my colonies instead of multiple. Even though the comb was there, already drawn, ready to go, they just didn't have the influx to bring it in. So, um, yeah. but once the honey gets extracted, depending on, like you said, the contents of the honey, things can happen. And sometimes this puts beekeepers into an absolute tailspin. I just recently was chatting with one of our listeners who is up in Canada. And up in Canada, they have a lot of rapeseed, which is canola. And mm-hmm. that stuff crystallizes like within hours to days. Uh And it makes the most smooth, creamy texture. I love it. But she's like fighting this natural instinct of the honey to try and liquefy it so that she can sell it. And I told her, I was like, you're kind of like doing yourself a disservice and way more work than you should. You should just let it crystallize and then educate your end consumer. And I think this topic today is going to be wonderful because you can explain to everybody why honey crystallizes, what it is, the processes, and ways that it could benefit them or work to their advantage. Yeah. So I had this presentation that I started giving because no one was doing a presentation at the B-Schools in Texas about honey crystallization. So I developed this 
I don't know, a couple of years ago. And I always start out with just that, with that you are all here because you want me to tell you how to keep your honey from crystallizing. And I am sorry to disappoint you <laughs> because you will learn the four reasons that honey will crystallize. And you can obviously, there's some adjustments that you can make to prevent that. But what I'm really here to convince you all of is that it's a natural process. And rather than fighting against nature, you have to find ways to work with it. And rather, you know, I was at a bee school. I remember one of the first bee schools I was at and I was selling honey and we were pretty new and a gentleman came up, picked up a jar and all of the honey that we sell almost all of it's already crystallized. You might come in and see some liquid on the shelves because we do jar up every couple of weeks. Like we don't jar everything in August for the year. We jar, we keep it in buckets and then we jar it. So if you've got our honey pretty quickly after, you know, jarring, it'll be liquid. But this gentleman came up and he picked up a jar and it was crystallized. And he goes, you know, you really shouldn't sell honey like this. And, you know, if someone said that to me now, I would tell them how to and what for. But back then I was still so young <laughs> and intimidated. And I was just like, oh, but, you know, so many consumers are still learning, have so much to learn. And I always present this to folks that say, I can't sell this crystallized. And I, I say, okay, would you rather take an extra moment and at purchase explain what they're seeing and why it's natural and it's okay. Or would you rather sell them a jar of liquid honey, then get home and it's going to crystallize again anyway. And then they think that you sold them a fraudulent product that's gone bad. Like, is that, that a better option? That is exactly what I told the listener. Even if you get it liquid, as quickly as it crystallizes, they're going to get home and it's going to turn right back to crystals. And if you haven't educated them, they're going to think it's gone bad. Right. Rather educate them that that's normal. That's natural. That's a great sign that you're getting real raw honey. And here, if you really want it to be liquid, I'll tell you how to do it. Right. Absolutely. Uh, but anyway, okay. So should we jump in and talk about the four, uh, things that, that go in because it is the, the, um, the composition of course, which we've kind of talked a little bit about, but there's three other things as well. Um, and I don't think most beekeepers actually quite understand all that goes into it. So should we jump in and talk about each one individually? Yeah. Yeah. Let's start off okay. with, we've already mentioned fructose. So let's start off with the different sugar contents and you know, how those yep. affect your composition of your honey. Yeah, so composition is the biggest contributor to whether or not your honey will crystallize and how quickly. And it's the one that we can't control, <laughs> really. I mean, unless you're moving your bees around to catch nectar flows, but it's the one that we have the least amount of control over. So, um, you know, as we know, honey is a super saturated solution of sugars, right? So lots of sugar and not much water. And the main two components of honey is two different types of sugars fructose and glucose. And fructose is more soluble than glucose. So basically the balance between those two sugars is the main determinant of how fast a honey will crystallize because everything in nature is always trying to reach, it's always trying to seek balance. And so trying to seek balance, um, the sugars will separate from the water and attach to particles. And that's really where the, the crystallization happens. And because you know, fructose can dissolve more sugar than glucose per 100 grams of water, um, then your fructose honeys um, are going to crystallize uh, 
much more rapidly than your high glucose. I'm sorry, your low glucose examples. And so we talked about sunflower honey, um, cotton, um, dandelion. I've heard. I don't have a lot of experience with like a lot of these, um, you know, single origins. But those are the varietals, ones that I've heard. Yeah, yeah the varietals. Uh, mesquite for sure crystallizes really quickly. I'm very familiar with that one. Yep. Mesquite quickly. Uh, crystallizes really rapidly and with a really sharp texture. Um, and then of course there's low glucose, glucose examples, which the, probably the one that's the most um, common that you hear about that crystallizes very slowly, if not at all is Tupelo. That's the one that you yes. hear about. Tupelo honey. And I, I don't actually know if it will eventually, does it never crystallize? Do you know? I'm not totally sure if like it sits there for years, if it will, Um, It can stay liquid for several years, actually. Um, Part of it is just like with the rest of it, and you'll get into this in a moment, but part of that is some of those external factors. But even with all of those things involved, um, I think the the oldest I've had was three to five years, and it was still perfectly liquid. And it'll also have that, when the light hits it, it almost has kind of a green shimmer to it. mm Mm-hmm. And yeah, that, that's how you know that that is actually Tupelo honey and that stuff. They, uh, they ask a pretty price <laughs> for some, do, some of that. They do. They always have a big chuckle about Tupelo. So I don't know a lot about the plant, but you know, it grows in the Southeastern part of the United States, but I do love the marketing that goes with Tupelo honey. Cause you hear people say it only blooms for two weeks out of the year. And I think, well, what doesn't bloom for two weeks out of the year? <laughs> <laughs> so mean- the the thing what? that I've been told with it that, that made it the way that it is is because of not not just the fact that it's got a short bloom period, but because of where it is blooming. It's in swampy areas that are hard to access and hard to get to. And in the old days, that meant putting your bees on a barge and floating the barge through the swamp timing it perfectly with the bloom. And so there was a lot that went into it versus, you know, our wildflowers out here that are just doing their thing or a tree that might be out in your apiary, you know, those things you don't have to plan as much (laughs) to get to. Absolutely. And I also, I know that with Tupelo along with like in a lot of the other kind of, you know, rare or harder to produce honeys, there's a lot of fakies out there too. And I know that there's a couple of states in the South. Is, is it Georgia and Alabama? No, it's Florida and there's two states. Florida, that are made- Florida and Florida and Georgia. Georgia. I think it's Florida and Georgia fight over. They fight sourwood. over it. Yeah, they fight over sourwood too, which also is one of those that has a short bloom period and is only in those Blue Ridge Mountain areas. And so the northern part of Florida, part of Georgia, and part of the Carolinas have the opportunity to produce sourwood honey. And then there's this big rivalry over whose is real and whose is better. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So that's the main component, right, is your fructose versus your glucose. For our list, the listeners that are here in Texas, I can give you an example of one that crystallizes very slowly. And John, you might have had experience with this. The really dark motor oil black honey that you get in parts of Dripping Springs, which is southwest of Austin. I don't know if you've had experience with that. I believe it's persimmon. (gasps) I never thought about that. I think it's persimmon. 
I, I think strongly enough that it's persimmon and that's what I tell people. And anyone that knows me knows I'm very hesitant to like give facts that I don't, I'm not sure of, but I'm, that's, that's, we're almost certain it's persimmon. But anyway, that one crystallizes very slowly. In fact, I've only seen it crystallize once and it happened outside after the freeze. So you had our honey sit in a below zero <laughs> temperature right. for a week uh, when our power was out and it crystallized. And that's the first time I've ever seen it crystallize. I've had it sit on the shelf for over a year, well over a year, and it not crystallized. But I think it's persimmon. Now, see, Texas, you've, Texas persimmon. You've I want to make sure to clarify that. Yeah, you've got me thinking now because the only other honey that is a varietal honey that I've ever tasted that tastes like our dark winter honey, which in my area, the apiary that tends to produce it is on the West side of 35. And it's going to be out in that, like towards the dripping Springs, um, mm -hmm. towards the dripping Springs area. So, but the only other honey that I've ever tasted that has that same profile to it is avocado honey. And it is yeah. dark and it has that same rich, mm -hmm bitter almost kind of taste to it in consistency. Mm -hmm. So that's really kind of interesting that it would be a, a, you know, a natural fruit tree out there. Yeah. Providing that. Yeah. Very yeah. cool. And, and persimmons, I want to make sure, but the, you know, you've got several varietals of persimmons, like the persimmons that we're most familiar with is like the orange. Those come from Asia. I think Japan, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, you know, the persimmons, as you know, John, the ones I'm talking about are the Texas persimmons and they make little purple fruits. And they're, yeah. they just grow wild <laughs> out there. Yeah, everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's the first and the biggest contributor. So the second one and the one that I think beekeepers and probably the public are the most familiar with is what we call catalyst. So that's when we get into, we talk about, is it raw or has it been pasteurized? So the catalyst means that when this super sugared saturation tries to seek balance, the sugars have to have catalysts to form the crystals around. And so you've got to have pollen grains, pieces of wax, dust can even cause it, seed crystals. These all serve as like little nuclei for the crystallization to get started. Um, and so the composition of the honey determines if it's going to crystallize. And then these little catalysts play a role. You've got to have these catalysts in the honey. So for beekeepers that hyper filter their honey, so like, you know, the honey in the grocery store, for example, has been heavily heated and uh, filtered through very, very, very fine filtration yeah. systems. It's heated, and pressurized, so, and pushed through a micro fine filtration. Exactly. Out of it. So there's no catalyst left for crystallization to now, form. One, one little side note here on filtering and straining. Sometimes your filter media can actually inadvertently add this catalyst to it. So if you're using like a cheesecloth that has a cotton fuzzy texture, sometimes some of that fuzz particulate can actually get into your honey and thereby provide a catalyst, even though you've strained, you think you've strained all the stuff out, but then your straining media actually put stuff back into it as well. So that's a... Uh, yeah. That's another little side note. <laughs> yeah, or dust if your jars were dirty. Um, like if, you know, you, you got them in and they sat open and they got dirt in them. Or even the um, the vessel that you put your honey in. 
So it, you know, if it's got really smooth sides, but if the vessel, let's say you put it in a bucket that had a bunch of scratches along the side and the plastic, that can also serve as catalyst too. Yep. Describing, I think, half of the buckets that are currently sitting in <laughs> my story. All of mine, all of mine are like totally scratched on the bottom where I, you know, I I drilled through to put the the honey gate and like jammed the drill through and it just like took the bottom part of the plastic off. Yep. That's all mine. <laughs> yeah, I've scratched them trying to scrape, you know, scrape the crystals and stuff out. I've I've then cleaned the bucket out and been like, what is oh, I did that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The third one is temperature, storage temperature. So again, we talked about how, you know, these bigger these honey packers are gonna heat their honey um, to high temperatures and keep it there for a long time in order to prevent crystallization. Um, but this is really a big one for, this is one you can control, right? So you can control if you want to encourage crystallization or discourage crystallization. And we know that crystallization is most rapid between 50 and 59 degrees Fahrenheit. And the ideal temperature for crystallization is 57 and change. 57.2 is what I've always heard. And so when you're talking about making creamed honey, for example, you know, when I first tried to make creamed honey, temperature control is really important here. And I would put it in my refrigerator, but refrigerators are too cold um, because they're colder than 57 degrees. So you have to use a wine fridge. So it took me forever to figure out why I couldn't get my creamed honey to set. Um, and Pamela Yeomans was the one that was like, you can't put it in a fridge, Tara. <laughs> She's said, I don't know, have you had Pamela on? Yeah, we've had Pamela. Yeah. She was on in season one, um, yeah. once or twice, I think. She's the creamed honey queen. Uh, so anyway, so that's kind of the ideal temperature. So anything below that crystallization is slowed down. So what that means is that you can put honey in the freezer and it will crystallize slower in the freezer than it would right in the refrigerator. And then anything above that um, as well, uh, will resist crystallization. So above 77 degrees, um, if you wanted to keep your honey liquid, keeping it above 77, you'll do better than keeping it, you know, between like that 50 and 77 degrees. So we freeze a ton of honey. I do too. Um, That's my bulk storage is, is absolutely it goes in the deep freeze. Absolutely. So like we do a ton of cut comb here and chunk honey, but we don't like to cut it all up at the start of the season because we don't know what our needs are going to be. So wrap them in plastic and throw them in the freezer and it does keep it from crystallizing. Um, now it won't keep it from crystallizing forever. <laughs> uh, I actually, a fun, you know, beekeeping is just a constant adventure and experimentation. Yep. And we, <laughs> Every day is something new. We put a ton of, so we do a lot of chunk honey, you know, which is a little comb honey floating in liquid honey. And we had a ton that we put in the freezer because that was, tr I like chunk honey to stay I like if it, if the liquid honey, you know, the honey around the comb stays liquid because then you can see the comb. If it crystallizes, yeah, you can't all see presentation. the comb. Exactly. exactly. So I do like that. So I put them in the freezer and it did not stay liquid forever. It took many months, but it did crystallize and it crystallized in the smoothest texture. And I thought, well, that's unusual and strange. And I don't, I don't really know how, um, but anyway. But, but know that freezing honey will, will slow it down significantly, but it won't prevent it from crystallizing forever. So when you're talking about wanting to liquefy your honey, 
um, you know, you're wanting to keep it, uh, you know, 80, uh, 80 to 100, but you, the temp, so when beekeepers talk about, okay, how hot can it get before it starts to break down, um, you know, the crystals and damage the properties of the honey and it's no longer raw. I see a lot of different numbers. I've seen between 100 and 115. So I just always tell people, keep it below 100 and you're good to go. Right. Yeah. And think about the internal temperature of a colony too, because some people would be like, oh, but but you heated it, you know? And I'm like, okay, well, first off, we're in Texas. Um, they are going to keep around the brood nest. They're going to keep it in that mid 90 degree range anyway. Absolutely. And if it's up in a very top box where they're not really too concerned about controlling the temperature and it's a hundred degrees outside, guess how hot that top box is going to be? <laughs> yeah. At least a hundred. Absolutely. Yeah. I always point that out to folks too, that the colony is kept you know, much warmer. And we can talk about like ways to liquefy it, um, you know, in a bit that's safe, but we, there's all sorts of things you can, you can use, but for consumers, you know, for your buyers of your honey, I just tell them a pot of warm, not boiling water. So don't have any water overheat while you're trying to do this. But for us, we just use those, you know, you can buy the, the, um, we keep our honey stored in buckets. So you can you buy the, like, the those. The blankets, yes, thank you. I couldn't think of the word. Um, they're kind of expensive. And someone at a B school once gave me a hot tip and said, I think that's basically the same thing as the seed warming blankets that gardeners use to germinate seeds. And they're cheap, cheap, cheap. I have not tried it because I've got what I need. But next time I go to buy some, I'm going to try those because the the bucket, the the blankets are like, 70 bucks or something crazy. And these little germination seed blankets are like 12 bucks or something super cheap. Yeah. There's also a heating element, a coiled heating element that can be put down inside buckets or barrels, depending on how much you have that can do it as well. But I've always been leery of that because then it's a, a direct contact hot heat. And so I've always done the blankets, but it does take time. It it's does not take a, time. Yeah, it's it's not a you get an order for honey and you've got a bucket of crystallized honey and they want it tomorrow. It ain't happening. <laughs> no, no. And I've many a time promised to bring a bucket of honey to allow people to jar their own honey. And the morning of thought, oh, I don't have any liquid honey to bring to this event. <laughs> I've done that more than once. So, yeah, I mean, it takes like leave yourself a week and stir it. Yep. Stir you it have every to, you have to couple stir of it. days. Yeah. Otherwise you'll, you'll think it's all liquid and then you go to pour it in your bottling bucket and you get down and you're like, well, the whole bottom third is just solid. That's yeah, still solid crystals of sugar. Yeah. And that <laughs> always makes me worry too, because as you're going through and doing this, you talked about nature always finding a balance and you have a moisture content in there of, you know, 18% in theory as your average range you want to hit that or below is better. But you've got that moisture content. So what you're ending up with is something that is in reality, almost 80% a solid that is mm -hmm. suspended in this liquid solution. That's only 20% of that scenario. So it's natural balance is to try and separate itself out. But as it does, the moisture content in the liquid that's left goes up because the solids are coming out of that. So if you do liquefy part of it and you're not stirring it and getting it all mixed in so that it's all liquefying, I always then worry, is that top half going to have a higher moisture content? Because the other half of the sugar is still in the bottom of the bucket. Absolutely. Yes. That's such a good point. Yeah. So stirring is really important. 
So temperature is the one that we, you know, we can control. And like I say, 57.2 is the ideal temp for faster crystallization. The further you get away from that on either end, the slower um, your honey will crystallize. And then the last one that I think very few beekeepers know or think about is agitation. So the more the honey is moved around, the more rapidly the granulation <laughs> will occur. The, the more angry your honey is with you. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help it. I was like, I, when you said agitated, because I knew what was coming. And I was like, it's agitated, honey. It's angry, honey. <laughs> basically but no, describes yes. my pregnancy in Texas right now. I'm just agitated. <laughs> yeah, so the more you move it around, um, the more rapidly that crystallization is going to occur. So when you think about, um, you know, like if you extract your honey, that honey's moving around a whole lot. You know, it's getting slung out. It's getting run through a filter. It's getting into a bucket. You're probably pouring that into another bucket. Uh, so one that we don't think about, but it certainly plays a role here as well. well. Especially all of the Langstroth beekeepers that are doing foundation or wired foundation. How are you extracting your honey? You're putting it into a centrifuge. Mm-hmm. Like that's the epitome of agitation and moving it, you know, it's not just moving it in a big flow like a river. It's microscopic little droplets that are being flung and splattered everywhere. (laughs) Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. So those are the four kind of things that go into it here. Um, And then the other thing uh, to think about, which kind of goes back to your story, is weren't you saying that the honey that was coming out of the frames that it crystallized really fast was really smooth? Isn't that what you said? Yeah, this this last yeah. batch, it was it wasn't big enough crystals that I could see it, but when I would run my hands across each other, I could feel it. It was a very yeah. fine, sandy grain kind of texture yeah. to it. So the faster your honey crystallizes, the smaller the particles will be. And the slower your honey crystallizes, the larger the particles will be. So it, it goes with the fact of like when you're making creamed honey, right, you're putting it in a wine fridge or you're putting it at this ideal temperature. So it crystallizes pretty quickly, you know, a week. And that contributes to that really smooth texture as well. So faster crystallization is smaller particles, which is a smoother um texture in your mouth and something else that I'll share that we share, we do these honey sensory classes that, and we always talk about this is that whenever you have a honey that has been creamed and it has these really small, smooth particles, if you taste that honey next to that same honey in its liquid state, the creamed honey, the crystallized honey has a cooling effect in your mouth that the liquid honey doesn't provide. And I don't know the mechanics or the physics of that, but it's just really, the flavor is the same, right? But we, it's communicated to our brain in a different manner because there are different properties and there's more than just taste that goes into how something, you know, the flavor profile of something. And it does have this cooling effect, which is kind of really fun to think about. Yeah. And your, your taste, I was reading this really cool article the other day that talked about the five senses and how in reality we have way more than just five senses and none of those individual senses on their own attribute to some of these other perceptions that we have. But when you're eating something, you can see it and you can smell it and you can touch it. So you get texture along with the visual and the, or the, uh, uh, my brain just went blank, um, along with the smell. Um, Mm -hmm. what is that oral? It's not auditory. That's audio sound. Anyhow, 
The are you talking about the smell of something? Yeah, I'm trying to think of that word oh, that goes along the with smell. Aroma. The aroma. aroma, yeah. Okay. So you got you get the aroma that comes in there. And all of those things go together in your brain to then complete this picture. But then you've got your taste buds, but your taste buds are primarily salty and sweet with a few little nuance pieces there. So your brain is taking information from the smell and from the texture and from the salty and sweet and putting it together to create that final thing that you perceive. So uh, like Gordon Ramsay on his Hell's Kitchen show, he goes through and every season he blindfolds and puts earmuffs over the top of some of the contestants and has them taste basic, simple foods. And it's amazing how radically far off they are from what it actually is. Something that every day you would know what it was. And they'd be like, you know, he can give them, (laughs) he gives them peas and they come up with something outlandish, you know, like asparagus, which you would never confuse those flavors when you can see it and smell it and everything else. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting. And I did notice that before. And uh, we had, um, Marina on the show, actually. Oh, you did. I did see that. Yes. And I was talking to her about that, how, and you and I have had this conversation as well, when we did your segment after you came back from doing the honey sensory experience. And it's like, you have a liquid honey and it tastes amazing, but then you have the crystallized version of it and you taste it. And sometimes it almost seems like it tastes better or it's got more nuanced notes to it, but it's the same thing, the same makeup and the same exact proportions and everything as it was in the liquid, but your brain is now interpreting it completely differently whenever you're going through and experiencing that. Yeah. We did this really cool exercise with Marina where she, she'll give you three different colors of sugar water, red, blue, and clear, and you taste them and you have to guess which one is higher in sugar content. And the trick here is that they're all exactly the same. They're all exactly the same, but people will often choose the red um, or maybe the blue, but the red most common because, you know, we, our brain has already started processing that as something that's sweet. Um, We do this really fun exercise and people can do this at home to help demonstrate how important your smell is during our honey sensory classes. um, We give everyone a little bit of cinnamon and we have them hold their nose and, when you put the cinnamon in your mouth, when your nose is held, you can't taste it at all. You think there's dirt in your mouth because you can like feel you get the, the gritty, gritty texture, texture. Yeah. And you can't taste. And cinnamon is not a weak, you know, taste. It's not a weak flavor. That's and true. And when you let go, it's like cinnamon just floods your nasal cavities. Um, but yeah, you can't, 70% of what we taste starts in our nose. I mean, think about how many things or how many people you know that don't like something because the texture is quote weird. You know, like I don't like raw onions because the texture just kind of weirds me out. And there's all sorts of things. We make so many judgments about food before it ever even gets yeah. in our mouth. I'm that way with mushrooms. I cannot stand <gasps> the texture mm-hmm. of mushrooms. Me too. There's very few things I won't eat, but raw onions, mushrooms, and olives, I can't do those three things. And it's because of the texture with the mushrooms. So anyway, so those are the four things that go into it. So then, you know, we could talk about like preventing and reversing crystallization. But like I say, I always try to encourage folks um, to, particularly if you're selling honey and on any scale to educate your consumer about 
it's a good sign of real raw honey and that is the least bit of processing and that's what you want in your honey it both in you know the tech the quality of the flavor um and the health benefits are just so much less when you go through all this like processing that this grocery store honey goes through so we store our honey in buckets um, we're a small producer so we just do we don't even do five gallon buckets because of the weight god five gallon bucket of honey is so heavy we do three and a half gallon buckets and so when we go out for the season we store it in these buckets um you know we try to keep the temperature um you know room temperatures the temps that we're going for um you don't you don't want to store your honey at really warm temperatures or really you know for extended periods like all sort of faults can come in when you have and you what you really don't want is you don't want huge temperature swings Right. So you don't want it to get really hot and then really cold and then really hot and then really cold. Like try to keep steadies better than anything else, no matter what temperature it stays at. And then, you know, the week before we do jarring once every two weeks or so when we check our list and see what we need. And then we put on our warming buckets for our warming blankets for a week, liquefies it. it those warming blankets, I don't know the exact temperature they get to, but they don't get to over a hundred and just because they're a hundred doesn't mean the honey inside is going to even get that warm. So it keeps you well below a hundred degrees below the safe point. And then we jar it, but then again, pretty quickly, especially spring honey in Texas crystallizes so fast, much, yep. much faster than the fall honey. And then we jar it up and then it crystallizes. And I have never, ever, ever put a jar of honey in liquid or in water to liquefy it before it got sold to a consumer. I just rather educate them. So that's what, that's how we do. Do you do it differently? Uh, no, actually that is, that is spot on minus the, the five gallon bucket versus the three and a half gallon bucket. Um, Cause I still haven't learned that lesson yet on, Hey, this shit's heavy when you try to pick it up. But <laughs> although I have almost hurt myself by reaching over to pick up a bucket that I thought was full and it was empty. And I about threw it through the ceiling. <laughs> Oh, that's so funny. Because I was like, I was certain that the bottom row of buckets was all full and then the two rows on top were full and I was going down the row and I took off one and, you know, 60 pounds and set it aside. Take off the next one, 60 pounds, set it aside. And I grabbed that last one and I was like, woo! Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> I about chunked it. I was like, holy crap, took my arm out of socket. It's an empty bucket. But yeah, <laughs> my body was overcompensating for something that wasn't full. Um, that's too funny. Have but you I, done, I do the same thing. Um, have, you done the, um, have you done the warming box, like creating a warming box from a freezer or a fridge? Have you done that? I have. Um, and I will do that sometimes with, well, really the only time I've actually done it is on the, when I've already got them in a gallon bucket or a gallon mm -hmm. jug. And then I'm like, well, crap, because now it's in a container that is meant to be poured out of. It's not really something that, you know, I guess I could try to wrap the blanket around it, but I did do a warming box for gallons because I do have a restaurant that will buy it from me in the gallon container. And sometimes yes. I will turn around and I will be like, oh, well, I'll go ahead and just, you know, silly me, <laughs> I will pre gallon jar this up and get it in the jug and then. They're like, oh, we just need one this week or we just need two and I've got two extras. And then, you know, two or three weeks later, that's solid. And I'm like, uh oh, <laughs> so. yes, that is the one exception. I will I will say that's the one exception is that I don't do a lot of restaurant sales. We sell most all of it in smaller jars, um, you know, to consumers or wholesale retail. But um, 
we do sell some quartz, um, very few of them, but we do some quartz for um, some bars, for special cocktails, for special events. Or like, for example, this weekend on Saturday, we're doing a honey sensory class and Dewar's Vodka is going to come out and they're going to make some cocktails. And so just for the ease of the bartender that's going to be making those cocktails, I will liquefy those quarts before I hand them over. Yeah. Um, just as like a courtesy to the customer. And I just use the warm water method, you know, fill the water up below the, in a big pot below the line of the neck. And, you know, I get it real hot and take it off the heat and then put it in. And that's the only exception. And that's just because that bartender can't use that honey in a syrup without, you know, they're, they, they're going to heat it in some way. And I would rather give it to them liquid rather than have them turn around and like heat it and burn it really high or, or, you know, so that's the one exception that I make. But other than that, we start with it crystallized. Yeah. Mine is, it starts off, uh, the, when we first do the harvest, obviously everything's going to be liquid and there are certain things that, if I know that I'm going to be doing it, or like you said, I, I store it all in a five gallon bucket. A lot of it will go into the deep freeze, especially the cut comb that'll go in the chunk comb jars. Those will go into the deep freeze. And then I'll put the warming blanket around a bucket. It sets there for a week. And I go out there every day, once or twice and stir it and, you know, try to make sure that it's all liquefied. And then once it is, I put it in the jars and I sell it. But I did start getting to where some of the containers I will come across will naturally, like you were saying about some of the other create a very smooth, amazing texture. And you can tell, you know, like, oh, look at this one. It looks like rock candy. You know, they're like giant chunks of crystal in there. And you're like, that, that's not, that's not pleasant for anybody. Mm-hmm. But the ones that make a nice smooth texture, I will actually go through and and just use like a wooden, um, it's not, it's like a wooden spatula basically. Mm-hmm. And I will gouge it and work it so so it's fairly pliable. And then pour that into a jar and jar it just like that as the crystallized form for people that have now been educated and prefer it in that way. Because one of the things that you can always tell the client is, you know, number one, as we have learned today, it's natural. It's going to happen over time anyway. But number two, it is way easier to deal with when it's in a crystallized form. You can scoop it. It's not running off your spoon. If you're going to put it into a hot tea or a hot liquid, it's going to melt anyway. It's fine. But you can put it on toast and you can spread it so much easier. And it's still on hot toast will start to reliquify. So it's actually easier to manipulate and deal with in that crystallized form for the end consumer as well. And that's a bonus, you know, like a selling benefit to it. So Absolutely. it's all just about, yeah, it's all about marketing. It's how you present it to the customer, Absolutely. letting them know that it's okay in that form. And it's right. less work on you, right? Yes. Work it, smarter, it, not harder. <laughs> yeah, that it's a natural process. It doesn't change the quality. It, in fact, it's a good sign that the quality is very high. It doesn't change the flavor. So much less messy. And actually, for things like, you know, if you've ever noticed and you put liquid honey on yogurt, you ever noticed how your yogurt all of a sudden feels like it's so watery? Um, I believe, so honey is hygroscopic, which means it draws moisture from anything it touches. I think mm-hmm. the reason that you see that is because that's that honey at work. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, but if you have crystallized honey, what's even better is that you can have this like little side of honey and then you can, I'm very particular with my honey to yogurt ratio. And then you can <laughs> like, you know, just the right amount of honey for every bite of yogurt is what you've got. It's very easy to like portion, portion it out. And but I, I love do that. 
<laughs> and I tell folks, you know, it, but if they do want to prevent it or they want to speed it up, you know, you can put it in the refrigerator. Colder temperatures are going to, you know, the refrigerator is going to get you there a little bit faster. So if you want to prevent it, keep it in a warm, sunny window. If you want to encourage it, you can put it in the fridge. Now, a fun little thing that people can do at home to see that hydroscopic process in action is actually to mix honey and peanut butter together. Because if you have, especially like a natural peanut butter that can be a little bit more runny, you have this runny peanut butter and you put it into a jar or a, a little bowl. And then you have honey, which in its liquid form is also runny. And you put it into that bowl and then you start to stir it. The honey sucks the moisture content out of the peanut butter. And all of a sudden it turns into like a putty. Like it gets visibly harder to stir as you're going through and mixing it. And that's one of those processes where that honey is so desperate for moisture that even something like peanut butter that doesn't have a lot of moisture, it still robs everything that it can from it as it's initially combining. Oh, I have not tried that. So what you're saying is that my theory about the yogurt is correct what you're telling me. Yeah, it does different okay, things. Good. So like when you put it on when you put it on fruit for instance, when you first put it on the fruit, it's going to go through and try to pull moisture, but there isn't necessarily any moisture there until it starts pulling it out of the fruit and so then your fruit starts getting, you know, more juice to it as mm -hmm. it goes through and combines and does that. So it depends on what you're combining it with and the moisture content of that if you start to see it kind of pull up or if all of a sudden it's like why is this so stiff and hard to stir all of a sudden? You know, it, it's really kind of cool how honey can work. It's magic. It's such a mystical little thing. <laughs> yeah, so many fun things. I'm going to have to try that. So yeah, so like just sharing all those things with your consumers and you're just doing the entire industry a service. <laughs> That's right. You're saving yourself a lot of work and heartache. You're educating the customer. And it's one of those things that can also be a great gateway for other conversations too, because when you educate the customer that honey that is raw and is natural is going to do this. And in our area, our honeys usually have this, this, and this in it. So it's going to crystallize at this pace at about, you know, if you're in storing it in your kitchen and your kitchens in the seventies, you know, it will crystallize a little bit quicker than if you were storing it somewhere where it was warmer, you know, or, or colder and educate them on that. And then you can always use that as a pivot to talk about honey in the grocery store mm -hmm. and how it magically never seems to crystallize and why that is. And then that leads to other conversations where you can help educate them in other ways so they can be a smarter consumer when they're out there spending their money and spend it in the right place to support the right people instead yes. of potentially supporting people that are adulterating honey and, you know, flooding the market. And, and when you talk about the fact that the honey in the grocery store, if it's real, let's just make that say that. But if it's if it's real honey, it's it's gone through processes that are not natural whereas yours is just a natural process and it's going to help justify your higher price point because everybody listening is charging more than the grocery store. And if you're not change that immediately. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Because that honey is being bought pennies on the barrel. Oh my God. From it is other countries so brought in, mixed up, reduced down and then sold at that level. Now, any beekeeper like in reality, if we were to truly charge you everything that went into that honey, you would never be able to afford it. No. By the time of the, like, just the man hours alone, not counting gas and mileage and all this other stuff that has been put into every trip to that hive throughout a whole year just to get you that one little bit of honey, you'd never be able to afford it. So, no. 
it absolutely has to have that higher price tag to it because it is yours. It is finite. It is unique. And anybody who's ever just lived on honey in the grocery store, when you let them try your honey for the first time, their eyes get so big and they're like, oh my God, I never knew honey could taste like this. And that's when you can say, that's because you've never had real honey. <laughs> Tot- it's not even, it's not even the same product. It's just not even the same product. Uh, not at all. Yeah, we did this fun little thing uh, where we, I'm always, 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 you know, telling, like, telling people, this is why our honey costs more. And this is why and, and, and I always say, you know, I always do a photo on Instagram every year during harvesting, where I am just ragged to the bone. <laughs> and I do it every year. And I say my yearly reminder that producing your food is not easy and producing your honey is definitely not easy. And if you are still unsure, I invite you out into the bee yards with me. And on a triple digit day, we'll put you in a full suit and have you pull 50 plus pound supers off of hives from animals that honestly are very, very dissatisfied with you at that moment. And that's just one small part. You just see that one flash of time of what it takes. Um, and I promise you, you won't question <laughs> the price. But we did this really fun thing um, where we we did this like little taste test and we offered, we I think we were doing free shipping and we said, if you've not tried our honey, we're going to give you free shipping today. We want everyone to try it. And we're going to give you what you've been eating at the grocery store in the box as well. Taste them side by side. And if you are displeased with our product compared to what you've been eating I will refund your money. And we put in little craft packets of honey. Mm-hmm. And if any beekeepers listening has not had, cause I know personally I hadn't had, you know, that nasty fake honey you get it, um, you know, like uh, fast food restaurants in many years. And I tried it and it is so disgusting. <laughs> and we threw those in the shipments and went out and nobody, nobody, off took me up on my offer of refunding their money because there's just no comparison. That's awesome. That's no it's comparison. brilliant as well, but that's awesome. <laughs> no comparison. And we always like toy with this idea of like wanting to offer that in the shop, but it's so gross and we feel like the experience that we provide our consumer is so like we put so much time and energy into it that we always stop short of it because we're like, we don't even want to give it to you. It's so foul. (laughs) So we've thought about when we do our tastings in the shop, you know, having that as an option, but we've never done it because we just, it's so foul. I don't even want to like ruin their experience with something so gross. Right. That's, that's absolutely right. Well, let's, when I've done tastings for people before, I purposely walk them up the ladder to the strongest thing because I don't want that to be the first thing that they got. (laughs) So, you know, like, like a winter honey or a dark honey, or like you were saying that possible persimmon honey, um, something like that will be the last item that you taste. And then I might move over to like my infused honey products or something, which is going to be completely different. But, you know, the the delicacy and the subtleness of some of the early spring honey would just be so overshadowed by how yes. overpowering that dark stuff is. Absolutely. So you start in stages and work your way up. But yeah, I could see that Absolutely. throwing in the real deal from a manufacturer that's not real. <laughs> and you'd be like, yeah. Oh. Absolutely. You know what? So this is kind of taking us into far left field, but I'll share it anyway, since we've talked a little bit about that really dark persimmon honey. So we don't have bees in dripping. They just don't. So for those not in Texas, this is an area south, 
west of Austin, and it's just not good forage. So mm, we have clients. Rocks yeah, and cedar. Rocks. <laughs> rocks and cedar. And so we we don't have our own production hives there, but we do take care of some clients' bees down there. And we and a lot of those clients we they sell that honey back to us. And so that's where we get that again, what what we think is that persimmon honey. And it's motor oil black and it's far from you know if you've ever had a buckwheat honey it's kind of on that end of the spectrum yeah um, minus so, minus the ammonia aspect but yeah but it's like it's it's similar in that it's the exact opposite of what you think honey should taste like in that yep. sense um and it's got this the texture is so weird it's it's almost like um it's super viscose and it's super thick. I hate extracting it. It literally takes 24 hours to run through a strainer. It's just super thick. It's just a really weird consistency. Um, but anyway, so we would get this. And I remember one of my beekeepers that was working for me at the time was like, that honey is nasty. We can't sell that. <laughs> and I sat on it for a little while. And this is a great example of how when you're t dealing with consumers, you control the narrative. You control the narrative. And so we sat on it for a while. And what we started doing is when we started doing these honey sensory classes, we started putting it on the plate as one of the tastings. And we found that if we just shared that honey with someone, you know, here, try this. People were a little turned off by it because it wasn't what they were expecting. But when we started putting it in our honey sensory classes and doing it as one of our tastings, we sell a lot of that honey. And the reason is probably twofold. I think one, people that are taking these honey sensory classes, these tasting classes, probably are a little bit more open to new flavors. But two, I think it's all in how we present it. And so we talk about how honey is made and we talk about the different flavors and we tell the story of the honey. We tell them where it comes from. We tell the story of how it's harvested and how it's such a pain in the ass. And we tell this great story of it and people try it. And it is probably one of our most popular honeys. And not only that, we call it our secret menu honey. So we would never sell that to someone that didn't know what they were getting. Yeah, they got to come in and ask for it. They come in and ask for it. And just like Torchy's Tacos has a secret menu, we have a secret menu honey. And people come in and they go, oh, I want some of the secret menu honey. And we sell all of it that we get every year. So again, for those of you that are that are selling honey or trying to get in the business, just remember that you control the narrative and telling the story of something can do, telling the story of how you got into bees, telling the story of our bees, telling the story of how this jar got here. Like people get vested in that and that's how we do so well. And we charge, you know, more than anyone else in the state for our honey, but it's because we've got this great story and people want to support that. That's that's actually very true. <laughs> oh, about our pricing. Yeah, I yeah, it, it, yeah. It me. So, so I ran out of honey for the first time. Like I, I had this really weird year last year because of COVID, and because of all of the restaurants and and all of the retail stores shutting down. Even though my harvest last year wasn't great, it was way better than this year, but it wasn't great in in the grand scheme of things. Same, same class. Yeah, I ended up having a surplus because it wasn't all being consumed by the restaurants and the retail stores. And that carried over all the way into this year. And then, and I've mentioned it on the show here recently, um, there, there's a lady who has a peach stand 
And she started buying honey from me like six cases at a time every single weekend. And I very quickly ran out of all my honey up until just now doing this harvest. And when I ran out, she was like, what am I going to do? And I'm like, well, I told you honey's finite. It is, it is not something that's always available, you know? And I said, there are some people in the area that I trust that may still have some. And I gave her your contact information. <laughs> I gave her Pamela's and I gave her, um, I tried to give her Charlie's cause Charlie's in her area, but Charlie was like, I messaged him and he's like, dude, I'm out like wiped out. And I'm like, okay. You know, so I went through and I gave these, these different resources and she sent me a thing back and she was like, Oh my God, did you see she's charging? And I was like, well, I mean, if you want it bad enough, she's the only person that's got it. So that's what you got to do. <laughs> like, yeah. And we run out every year, you guys. We run out every year. We don't ever have any surplus. In fact, the reason that we don't do wholesale to a lot of restaurants and bars is because why would I do that when I can sell it? Oh, 100%. Yeah. 1,000%. Absolutely. Yeah. Amen. It yeah. kills me every time I have to do a wholesale order because oh, yes, I want my name out there and yes, I, I want the honey to go somewhere. But at the same time, every jar that walks out that door at wholesale, I'm like, I could have made double that. <laughs> yeah, easily. Yeah. I, wholesale retail double. And then when you're doing wholesale to like bulk, wholesale bulk, oh, is yeah. cool. it's that hard gallon. to stomach. That gallon, that's, oh my God, oh man. really hard to stomach. Yeah, but like, you know, that didn't, that doesn't come from just us being like, we're going to charge more than anyone else and we like magically, it happens. Like we put an incredible, there's a reason that we get asked to teach, you know, the marketing and branding course right. at the B schools every year. We've put an incredible amount into sharing the experiences and the stories and marketing and branding and the aesthetics and, um, and teaching people about honey tasting and all that. So we put a lot of work into that and that's how we can, we also cater, you know, like our wholesale retail program, we're going to definitely higher end right. um, shops and stuff, but you know, like we're selling. So like our, let's see, um, our, one of our, what's our six ounce, we sell a six ounce jar retail. We've got one on the shelf. It's our neighborhood honeys. We label with the neighborhood and we're selling that at, $17 retail. But you know, for every one of me, how many chocolate bars are out there are selling $8 for a chocolate bar that you eat in one sitting? Right. Absolutely <laughs> so right. There is a market for that out there. This, this There's a market, there's people out there that are will understand. And even at my prices, I can't make it on honey alone. No. I can't. That's, that's the can't. truth about beekeeping, period. You yeah. cannot do just one aspect of beekeeping and have it support everything in your life. You have to diversify yeah. or it's just not going to work. But Not if you're the producer. If you're a honey packer, that's a whole other story. But if you're yes. the producer, you cannot do it on honey alone, even at like the, you know, if you've got a higher price point like I do. Yeah, those boutique prices. But see, one of the other things for your guys in that boutique aspect is you kind of pioneered this whole zip code honey. So if somebody wants to get honey that is absolutely, truly local to their area here in town, they can literally buy honey from their zip code, like from that neighborhood, from that area. And it's not a question of, well, it might've been somewhere in Texas. It's like, no, it's about five blocks down the street from your house, you know? Right. Like, and so there's a market for that as well. Just like the people that love that dark honey. I have a lady that actually... I, I might misquote this. I want to say she's in Ohio, but she was down here visiting family and they were on vacation and they went to Zilker 
back when I still had honey at Zoker before Zoker closed. I never restocked it after the pandemic, <laughs> but um, I had a jar of winter honey there. And she asked the staff and I had, I had kind of given an entire spiel to the staff about what, what each one was like so they could describe it to the, the potential clients. And she bought it because she was like, this is the honey I remember from when I was a kid. And it was always dark and it was always thick and it had this, this bitter, rich, molassesy kind of taste to it. So she bought a little jar tasted it, brought back all these memories from her childhood. Then she went to the process of looking me up and calling me directly and saying, do you have any more of this? I want it all. Yeah. <laughs> and and again, a honey that you wouldn't think anybody out there wants, but there is somebody out there that means it means something to them. And it brings back memories. That's one of the amazing things about beekeeping and selling honey or teaching about bees is Everybody has some sort of experience and they're not all the, oh my God, I got stung when I was a kid and I hate them. They're <laughs> my grandfather or my father yes. or somebody in my family did this and it brings back those old memories. And that also is part of the nostalgia that can go into the justification of the marketing and the prices and some of that other stuff. So it's yeah. all about how creative you can be, honestly. Buying is 100% emotional. It is 100% emotional. We make decisions all the time that are fueled not necessarily by the intellectual part of our brain, but rather the emotional part of our brain. And that can be nostalgia, like you talked about. Um, that can be the story that you're hearing. I mean, there's so much in, in, involved into it. And like, we're really big on core values here at Two Hives Honey. And one of our core values is tell the story because that's how we're able to do, you know, how we've got hundreds of Google reviews that are five stars that because we are here to tell a story that people love to hear the story, you know, everything from like how we started the company to like, I am 35 weeks pregnant and working bees. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Who doesn't love a good story? And so, um, you know, so we're not a honey that's, you're going to make an impulse decision by, you know, ripping through like a grocery store, but a lot of work goes into telling that story. But if you're a small producer, you know, like we are, we're, we're bigger than a lot of small producers, but we're still very small. You don't have enough honey for everybody anyway. <laughs> right. And so who cares if someone thinks your prices are too high or isn't into it, that's okay. You're not pizza. Everyone is not going to love you and love what you're doing. But if you only have a little bit, you're going to sell it all. Yep. You're going to sell it all. So, yeah. so have pride in it. Don't be afraid to tell people it's really hard work. It's really hard work. Like I say, as I said at the top, nobody if you've never been a beekeeper, you have no, there's, it's impossible for you to have any comprehension of how hard this work is to do every day. And it's not just that one time a year that you harvest. It is hard work the every whole day. year long, <laughs> yes. every day. Yeah. Uh, we you are know, crazy to, to do this. We are just, have you seen that Venn diagram? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this is Venn diagram. Bee Weaver sells these mugs in their shop plug for Bee Weaver and like, one side is farmers and one side is crazy people. And then where the two circles intersect in the middle is crazy. <laughs> yeah. Is crazy. yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and, you know, you mentioned, uh, your, your obligatory every year you put out the post about like, Oh my God, this is hot and hard work. Um, I have one of those from yesterday that by the time this airs, it will already be out there, but, uh, that I'm going to post out there. And I am literally like, 
road hard, put away sweaty, sopping wet mess, just haggard, tired, beat down, defeated. And I'm like, oh my God, is it done yet? <laughs> like, Yeah, it's such hard work. I'm working with live animals is super challenging, particularly live animals that are not domesticated. And also to- <laughs> get mad at you. <laughs> yeah, they're not domesticated. They are not your friend. They do not think I, I, they're, they don't think you're their mother. I'm sorry to tell you guys, like they don't, they don't have a spiritual connection to you. You might have a spiritual connection to them, but they are, they do not think of you as their caretaker in a heartbeat. They will turn on you. And we've all experienced that weird aside. I don't react to bee stings. I'm sure I have, have you, you, I'm sure you probably don't either. Do you react? Like, do you get swelling and red still a lot? No, very rarely. No. Cause I get stung it's, in my hands the most. And so it leaves a, yeah tiny little red dot under the skin where you can yeah. see, oh, that must be where I got stung because it looks like a little yeah. red freckle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. I don't swell or itch. The itching is the worst part, but they still hurt. Uh-huh. Uh, but, you know, like at some point you're like your tolerance for pain, like hopefully it helps me during labor. That's what I'm hoping. But like your tolerance for pain, is just gets higher. But since I got pregnant, they I have returned to like early weeks, tear a brand new beekeeper, working oh. beekeeper, the pain, they are so much more painful since I've been pregnant. And I don't Your know what Your body chemistry's changed. Yeah. Yeah. The hormones are something. But I was out this morning with an employee and I dropped about 45 F-bombs in about three seconds when I got stung in the finger. And that never, I never react, you know, and I was, I had to step away for a second and like compose myself. <laughs> yep. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, you know, we get asked all the time, do you get stung? And it's like, well, duh. Like, and then, and then the next question that follows is, does it hurt? And I'm like, yes, every time. Like, do I swell up? No. Does it hurt? Yes. Do I still cuss? Every time. (laughs) Yeah. Still hurts. We just don't have that like days of itching after or the swelling I used to get. I used to swell and get like giant red whelps, you know, like I got hit with a paintball. Yeah. Um, But that's long, 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 long gone. Thank goodness. I was having a conversation the other day with a gentleman that does welding and uses an arc welder on steel. And, you know, he has to wear the mask and he has to wear big old gloves and long sleeves and he's got a coat over him. And and again, we found a lot of similarities in what he does versus what I do because he's in all this extra fabric and clothing. It's hot as hell. He's working with something that's hot as hell. And sparks and embers and charred pieces of metal are flying off and burning through that material and stinging him. And as he's working, you'll hear him, four-letter word, four-letter word, (laughs) four-letter word. But he can't let go and he can't stop because of what he's doing. And it's the same with us. We're in a suit. It's triple layer thick. It's hot as hell out there. These things are hot and mad and trying to sting us. And they do sting us. And we say four letter word after four letter word. But you can't drop that box of bees. You can't drop that fresh, nice comb on that top bar. Like you got to hang on. Got to power through it. Right. Every time I still cuss (laughs) and then move on. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's. Man, it's hard. And then and then I always say, you know, I can't think of another form of ag where once you harvest the product, the animal that produced it will fight to the death to get it back. That's true. Yes. And if your honey super or your honey house is anywhere near your hives, they're all coming with it. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And they will adamantly sting you along the way. And then they will try to rob every drop of it they can back to take back to their colony. Yeah. 
I hesitate to say this because it hasn't happened, but you know, every year there's an incident where somebody forgets and leaves a super somewhere, <laughs> you know, and you've got 45 billion bees on it and it hasn't happened yet this year, but every year, so maybe our time's still coming, but every year something, it happens to someone at some point. Wow. Oh, so, okay. Um, we will uh, wrap this up in just a moment, but I have a curiosity question. Last year, I experienced for the first time ever a phenomenal fall flow. And <gasps> me where, too. Did you? Okay. Yes. So my my hope is that this year, because everything's yes. been so screwy, I'm really hoping that this year is the same thing. And if it is, I'm putting all my supers back out there because usually I don't. Usually it's not worth it. The bees do good to build up enough to make it through winter on their own accord and that's it. Yeah. And last year, I had top bars that rebuilt comb and refilled the entire hive because there was so much of a bountiful flow for the fall flow. It blew my mind. So this year I'm planning on putting all of the supers back out there and hoping that maybe I can make up for the dismal spring and summer flow by possibly harvesting a fall flow that normally I would not do. Yes, same. Oh, same. So last year, the spring was, I mean, it was bad. But compared to this year, <laughs> I would give anything to have the harvest from last year. From last year, right? <laughs> I didn't think it could get any worse. I And, you know, I sent out this, like, dramatic email to all of my clients. I was like, it was the worst spring I've ever seen. And then to have to say it again this year, they're probably like, She's just like the girl that cried wolf. Um, <laughs> but it's true. I didn't think it could get any worse. But same, we I hadn't had a fall harvest in two years. And we always say that in our honey sensory classes, you know, like we don't get this very often. And we got an incredible fall flow last year. I can't remember exact numbers, but we pulled pretty darn close to what we did in the fall versus what we did in the spring. And I, I have the same theory. I've been telling everyone, I wouldn't be shocked if we got even a little bit of a late August nectar flow, which we don't usually get in Texas. You know, the fall flow is usually going to start like mid to late September at the earliest. Yeah. But we've had so much rain. You know, everything is still so green, which on the one hand is kind of a pain because I rely on those yards that aren't prepped very well, you know, and you get all the big overgrowth in the spring. I rely <laughs> on that summer heat to kill all that stuff back. But um, everything's still lush and green. And I am really putting, I'm the reason, the only reason I'm not like just totally beat down about the spring is because I feel like we're going to get a good, really good fall flow. I'm hoping so. And yeah. so out there where my main apiary is, Last year, I experienced something that I didn't think that I would ever say because, you know, we all give goldenrod like a bad name and it smells funky whenever they're going through and dehydrating it. And it gets like this dirty sock smell kind of in the bee yard. Mm -hmm. Last year, I have uh, a plant, well, it's a shrub out there called false willow. Mm -hmm. And the false willow goes into bloom, or at least last year it did, right about the same time that the goldenrod did. But the goldenrod bloomed for like two to three times longer than it normally does out there. I know in years past, it's bloomed, and then a week later, it's rusty and nasty looking. And it, this last season, it was just so amazing. But the combination of the false willow and the goldenrod made the most amazing honey. I think it was, because I've always loved my spring honey. To me, that is so far the most favorite honey I've ever made 
It still has that weird smell when you first open it. You can tell it's got goldenrod in it and you're like, oh, mm-hmm. that's kind of strange. But when you taste it, it was just like the most unique bouquet of flowers that were mm-hmm. very specific. And I loved it. I was so in love with it. I was like, nobody can have this. It's yeah. mine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting, you know, like how much <laughs> you, if you're paying attention, you, you learn about like, you know, we didn't set out to be botanists, <laughs> but um, how much of this work is just us constantly looking at plants and figuring out what's blooming and what's coming in and what's producing nectar and what's producing pollen and what's blooming, but it's not producing nectar. Right. Like the mesquite didn't put off a lot of nectar this year though it bloomed twice. Yeah. Um, yeah. The fall flow last year was so amazing. So I'm hopeful for that too. Hopeful for Me us all. Me too. Me too. And yes, botanists, who knew? <laughs> <laughs> you gotta though, if you don't know what's going on in the environment around your beehive and the landscape and the ever-changing dynamics of it, you don't know what you need to be doing for your bees or what the bees may or may not need or have. It's very crucial. And then there's also things that play tricks on you too. So like the mesquite, the bees won't go to the mesquite just because the mesquite's blooming if there's other things out there that are blooming that they would rather have. For the mesquite, it's got to be, and for us, it normally is, you get that long dry stretch where it's hot and dry. The mesquite goes into bloom, but because it's been hot and dry, nothing else is producing nectar and the bees will flock to it. But this year it's been wet constantly. So when the mesquite bloomed, there was still other stuff blooming everywhere. And then you get plants that they bloom and you never see a bee on it, but you're looking like middle of the afternoon and evening. But one morning you walk by at about 7 a.m. and the whole thing is just solid bees because that's when it actually releases its nectar. And then by midday, the plant shuts down, the bees move on to something else. So it can be very tricky, but yeah, you absolutely have to pay attention to the environment and your surroundings and watch out for rattlesnakes. (laughs) Yeah, I really wish... I wish I knew more about botany and it's very hard to find information that's geared specifically towards like a beekeeping audience. You know what I mean? People are always like, it's really hard to find even a single list of plants that in your area that are pollen producing versus nectar. It's just really hard to find that information. Anyone out there, (laughs) I would love to have someone that was a beekeeper slash botanist that could do like a botany for like, how amazing would it be to have a botany for beekeepers course or something like that? Because I feel like we all, even like we know more than most, but I still feel like my knowledge like fails me in so many areas. And then it's also so regional, you know? So there was some purple pollen coming in, in a student's hives in high out towards Fredericksburg. And I, and I said, I don't know what it is. You know, and we, we like, I, I put it on social media, of course, knowing that I was going to get 8,000 answers that didn't pertain <laughs> to Texas. Like someone was like, I swear it's kudzu. And I was like, we don't have kudzu in this part of Texas and don't jinx us. We don't want kudzu. Right. Um, but um, it's so specific regionally, but even like a general botany for beekeepers, like talking about, you know, my understanding is that some flowers, like let's say it rains, some flowers can reproduce nectar very quickly within a couple of hours, but others, it takes a bit longer and just all these nuances of what happens and why I would just love to know more about. And I wish I had more of that expertise, but it would have to be a botany course geared towards beekeepers that understood what the beekeepers are looking for too. You know, just like a general botany is helpful, but it's not, we really need like a botany for beekeepers. That would be cool. From the bees perspective. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, thank you so much for joining today, Tara. I have had a blast and I wish you well on your journey ahead because it, <laughs> you're almost to the finish line. You're almost there. Just a little bit longer. Yeah. It's so, so fun to chat with you. I know why people like tune in and listen to these podcasts because it's just, you know, there's a lot of beekeepers out there, but to be able to just sit around and talk shop and have like camaraderie and understand and, you know, even like Aiden, my fiance, I mean, he knows a lot about bees because he hears it all day, but it's just so great when you get to sit down and chat with someone that's experienced and knows a whole lot about what's going on and sharing what works and what doesn't. And it's just like makes you feel less alone, especially in a year that we've, you know, we've had such a hard year and yes. we're all in it together. <laughs> we're absolutely. all in it together. <laughs> absolutely. 100%. I absolutely wholeheartedly agree. I, I actually had the opportunity to sit down with Natalie in person here not too long ago and about 10, 15 minutes into it, my internal monologue was like, oh my God, I didn't realize how desperately I needed this and how much yeah. I missed it. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, yeah, she and I were just chatting last week actually. Um, but it can just, it can be a lonely, it can be a lonely profession. And so it's always great to be able to talk shop with others. Yeah. Especially when it's not your significant other. That's like, yes, darling, yeah. I know you love bees, but seriously, I, <laughs> I know, I know. And even him, you know, like he has a better understanding than most of how hard it is, but even still, like it's, it's just like, oh, it's the same thing with, you know, being an entrepreneur or owning a business. It's very hard to understand the challenges unless you've done it yourself. You know, I always say, <laughs> I love when I was single. Oh, when I was single, I remember like I just started two hives and I, I'd go on dates with people, you know, like men that worked at, you know, Facebook or Dropbox or these kind of like big, I, you know, tech companies that at one point were true, like small business startups, but certainly not anymore. Yeah. And, or even like a true startup and saying like, Oh yeah, man, I know how it feels. And I'm like, no, you don't, you have no idea. You know, idea because you get a paycheck, you get a paycheck, you go to work at nine, you maybe go home at five and the weight of the world, you know, in your own mind is not way sitting on you every day. And it's the same thing with beekeeping. You know, I mean, it's just in any, I guess in any form of life, you need an outlet of people that understand how hard it can be and just can relate. And it makes you feel so much better when you get, so we can get out there and do it one more day. Right. That's, that's right. And there's, <laughs> I think the one, one thing that is completely different about that too, is beekeeping slash agriculture farming. Yes. The largest majority of it is absolutely 100% out of your control. It's so You hard. can't make it rain when you need it to rain. You can't make it be dry when you need it to be dry. You can't control the temperature swings, the freezes and the, the heat waves. And so you can do absolutely everything right and still yes. fail because yes. of all these variables that are out of control. And it makes it very difficult. It's very difficult. I will, I will be honest. This is the hardest year that I've ever had. I mean, it's harder than last year. Harder than like, you know, we're having Delta spikes again and we're having to deal with new COVID restrictions and, and concerns. But last year, you know, I didn't think that it could get any worse than having to cancel an entire year of classes and events and, you know, ways that we make revenue. But this year with the pregnancy, which is unexpected, <laughs> um, and it's been the worst year for bees that I've ever seen. And it has been the hardest year. And it, there has been many a moment in the last, eight months or eight weeks when I have been very serious thinking about like, 
walking away. And I was talking to Aiden about it. And I said, this, it's just, this is so hard to do. And he pointed out, he said, no doubt that entrepreneur and all the things that run in with running a business is very hard to do, but yours is uniquely hard and you have challenges that you would not. And we have to remember that, like we have challenges on top of challenges, you know, and it's just a really, really hard business to be in. Well, the upside to this is that after October and and, uh, November pass next year, you can look back and be like, by God, if I can make it through all that shit and be pregnant, I can do anything. It's true. It's true. And like I say, it's brought a lot of um, perspective that I think was really necessary. So we will also be, you know, changing some things up. But, you know, between COVID and these new life changes, um, really (laughs) thinking about what is it that I want to be doing every day? What's the mission here? What's the team get excited about and what doesn't excite us and kind of reassessing and moving things around. And so it's been a lot of like growth and introspection. And it sounds like you've been doing a little bit of that too. But I think we've all had a bountiful opportunities for that the last 18 months. (laughs) Yes, indeed we have. Well, I wholeheartedly look forward to seeing where this takes you and uh, seeing what comes out of it and what new brilliant ideas and paths that you have and go down. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. And congratulations again on the soon to be little bundle of joy and uh, and all the hard work that you put in and for joining us here on the show over the past dang three years now, you have been a guest at least once every season. So I wholeheartedly appreciate that as well. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been great, John. Thank you. It's time for our guys to buzz off. But don't fret. The Hive Jive journey continues with new episodes Mondays every month. Until then, you can follow along with the guys on Facebook and Instagram at The Hive Jive. Thanks for listening and be safe out there. <laughs>